I'm Sandy Willette. And I am Nancy Marie. Co-chairs of Beyond the Mass Committee to evaluate scholarly doctoral projects. Next deadline for work to be considered to present on Beyond the Mask is October 1. Please complete the one-page application found on Beyond the Mask webpage to be considered. We look forward to working with you. Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass Clinical Edition. I'm Sass Elisha. And I'm Jeremy Heiner. And you all know in these Clinical Edition episodes, we like to talk about clinical anesthesia topics. So in the past, we've talked about case management for different anesthesia cases, pharmacology, critical events, airway. And today, we are going to change it up a little bit. We're still going to stay with our power-packed, concise episode format. Sass, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we know that the CPCA is something that's looming over many, many CRNAs' heads. We know we're going to be taking it in 24 and 25 for those who have not. And Jeremy and I thought it'd be good to start doing some review podcasts with some review questions for you that could end up on that assessment. And we are going to call this episode Q&A for the CPCA. So let's get right to it. Let's take some deep breaths and pre-oxygenate ourselves. Sass, what time is it? It is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. So, for those of you who know us, Jeremy teaches a lot of the respiratory anatomy and physiology, and I do a lot of the cardiac uh, anatomy and physiology. So what we've done is we've each written three questions in our domain and we haven't shown the questions to each other. And what we're gonna do is I'm going to try to answer Jeremy's questions and he's gonna try to answer mine. So this could be a disaster or this could also work out very well. We're not sure yet. All right, we're, we're excited about this. And we, we literally, right before we got here, we thought, you know what? I haven't shown, I haven't shown Sass, I thought, I haven't shown Sass my questions. Let's just, let's just go off the cuff here and see what happens. I'm not excited. I'm a little nervous. (laughs) So let's see how this goes. Okay, let's see how it goes. I got a question for you, Sass. Are you ready? Nah. You're going to have to dig deep here. You're going to have to think back to anesthesia (laughs) school. Here's the first respiratory question. All right, now, here it is hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction 
is inhibited by, and this is going to be a select 2. So HPV is inhibited by A, sevoflurane, B, propranolol, C, nifedipine, or D, fentanyl. And again, it's a select 2. It's a select 2. All right. So as I look at it, you're talking about HPV or vasoconstriction. And, and as you look at it, you can't see the answers. So it's just the options here. Thanks. Right? Thanks for that. Just, just letting you know. Yeah. You, I'm not going to show you the answers. So, You've got to answer. So I'm clueless. Yes, I am clueless. <laughs> so as I look at this, I look at vasoconstriction, and we're saying what inhibits it, meaning what causes vasodilation. Pulmonary, specifically. Yes. Right? Pulmonary vasoconstriction. Yes. So when I look at that, I look at the two choices that are vasodilators will also cause pulmonary vasodilation, which are A, sevoflurane, and C, nifedipine. Is that right? Oh, wow. Look at that. Right out of the gate, coming in with the gloves on and knocking it out. Yeah, Sass, you're right on. The answers are yes. So HPV is inhibited by sevoflurane and calcium channel blockers. Nifedipine is one of those. All right, let's let's just give a, our our listeners a little bit of a, of a review on hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So this is a, a native response to everybody's lungs, and the purpose of HPV is to distribute blood flow regionally to increase the overall efficiency of gas exchange between the air and the blood. So within the lungs, both hypoxic and maybe even atelectatic alveoli, they, what they do is they exert a very strong influence on local pulmonary blood flow regulation. So essentially when alveoli hypoxia occurs, what happens is at, the, uh, at a precapillary site, there is vasoconstriction. So it redistributes that blood flow to areas that are better ventilated, that have more oxygen in the alveoli. By redirecting this blood flow from poorly ventilated lung regions to better ventilated lung regions, HPV is actually thought to be the primary mechanism that underlines ventilation and perfusion matching. So now, what inhibits HPV? And we only gave you two in the answer, right? So what inhibits it? Well, of course, our volatile anesthetics do, our calcium channel blockers do, potent vasodilators such as nitroglycerin and nitroprusside inhibit HPV, inhaled nitric oxide because it simply relaxes vascular smooth muscle is going to inhibit HPV, other pulmonary vasodilators such as prostaglandins and phosphodiesterase inhibitors will inhibit HPV. And a, a, a serious increase in cardiac output will inhibit HPV. And then here's another thing to think about. High CO2 tension, so hypercarbia, and acidosis, so high, elevated hydrogen ion concentrations, they actually increase extracellular calcium influx, causing vasoconstriction. So therefore, the opposite, hypocapnia and alkalosis, are thought to inhibit HPV. All right, so how about propranolol and fentanyl? Those were two options in the question. Well, studies have not found that propranolol inhibits HPV at all because it's a beta blocker. And opioids 
do not have any effect on hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So Jeremy, thanks. That's a great review of HPV. And what I always tell people that I'm educating is the body is amazing at trying to return itself to normal or to maintain whatever system it can in order to maintain ventilation and perfusion to the organs. It's truly amazing. All right. Nice going. We got one question down. Now let's switch over to the other, to the cardiac realm. This is where SAS thrives and I am just okay. He's going to ask a question. I'm going to try to answer it. This is going to hurt a little bit. It, oh, baby, I love the hurt. All right, this is a typical board question, possibly even a CPCA question. It's a classic. When increased, which factor increases myocardial oxygen consumption to the greatest degree? A, afterload. B, contractility. C, heart rate. And D, preload. All right, Sass, I got to tell you, I think you're being a little easy on me. I, I feel like you're... You're kind of throwing me a softball because you feel sorry for me a little bit. No, it's a good question, <laughs> I think. No, it's a fantastic question. And I, I actually, I remember this. This was one of the questions I had on boards. Um, you know, I know we have a lot of students listening and we really appreciate the students tuning in to these podcasts. We, we hope that this provides some value for you guys. Um, we definitely want to help with your education. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think that the answer here is heart rate. I think heart rate is what increases myocardial oxygen consumption to the greatest degree. Am I right? You, my friend, are right. Oh man, I, I was the suspense was killing me. But let me tell you a little bit about why you're right. So all of these factors are on the demand side when you talk about myocardial oxygen consumption. Afterload, contractility, heart rate, and preload. So why is heart rate correct? Because an increase in heart rate will not only increase the demand, but an increase in heart rate, so heart rate also ends up on the supply side too. So when we have supply and demand, heart rate is on both. An increase in heart rate is certainly going to increase demand. I always talk about it as stepping on the gas in your car. Your car is going to go faster, but it's certainly going to use more gas. However, heart rate is also on the supply side. As the heart rate is increased, the heart is in a less of a period of diastole. And remember, when we talk about coronary artery blood flow, the majority of uh, coronary artery blood flow occurs during diastole. So the faster the heart rate, a decrease in the amount of supply to the myocardium. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Okay, Sass, I, I'm, I'm going to hit you with this one. This, one, this one's going to be painful. And you're going to have to think about this one. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So the question what is. Curve? What's yeah, the name of that curve? Oh, you've got to remember back to anesthesia school for this one. Which factors cause a leftward shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? 
is it A, and this is a select two as well, is it A, increased production of 2,3-DPG, B, hypothermia, C, methemoglobinemia, or D, acidosis? Why do I always get the select twos? Great. <laughs> All right, so leftward shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, if, as I remember, it creates a stronger bond between oxygen and hemoglobin. Therefore, the amount of oxygen that's released uh, via hemoglobin as it whizzes by tissue is decreased. Therefore, things that shift to the left or decreased oxygen unloading, I remember, is hypothermia for sure. Um, I know that increased 2,3-DPG and acidosis shifts the curve to the right increasing the oxygen that goes to the tissues or decreasing the bond between hemoglobin and oxygen. So therefore, I have to guess C, methemoglobinemia, is the other answer, and I'm not exactly sure on the rationale related to that. Oh, Sass, you nailed it. Great job. Let's, let's go over this because you said a couple of things that I think are really, really important here. Number one, you said whizzes by... The, uh, the 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 cellular tissues the hemoglobin whizzes by that's a technical term right? yeah exactly yeah. very scientific <laughs> um, but I like how you kind of did the process of elimination here because we don't always know the answer to a question and one of the things that we can do is we can look at the distractors and if we know what they mean or if we can eliminate them for some reason in this case you eliminated both increased production of 2,3-DPG and acidosis because you knew they shifted the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the right where they unloaded oxygen easier. So therefore, you, you already knew hypothermia was a leftward shift that left methemoglobinemia, which is also a leftward shift. So th those are some of the strategies that you can do when taking a test is that if you can eliminate some answers that leaves you with less answers to be able to choose from. One other strategy is that if there are completely opposite answers and you simply don't know the answer, if, if you can look at those opposite answers, one of them is going to be correct and the other one isn't. So that's a, a guesstimate. In this case, hypothermia and methemoglobinemia absolutely shift the, left, the, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left. So if, remember, if we remember, this leftward shift is in an environment where hemoglobin has an increased affinity for oxygen. So it holds on to oxygen tighter. And if you look at the 50% saturation level, which is how we gauge whether the, the, the curve shifts to the left or to the right, where oxygen reaches the 50% saturation, it's going to be at a lower PaO2 value. So some other conditions that would cause a shift to the left, alkalosis, fetal hemoglobin, carboxyhemoglobin, decreased 2,3-DPG, and we already talked about hypothermia and methemoglobinemia. Now, let's just face it. Anytime that oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curves shifts to the left or to the right, that means cellular hypoxia can happen. The reasoning is that if it shifts to the left and 
hemoglobin holds on to oxygen, well, it's not releasing it to the tissues that really need it. And if it shifts to the right, that means those, those tissues are super metabolic, they're hypermetabolic, and they need more oxygen, and maybe not enough oxygen is being delivered. So let's just go into a little bit about methemoglobinemia and why that causes this leftward shift. This is a form of hemoglobin that contains the ferric or the three ion uh, form of iron. So the binding of oxygen to methemoglobin causes an increased affinity for oxygen. And the oxygen that's already bound to these hemoglobin sites on the hemoglobin molecule, they're gonna be more tightly bound in this ferrous, this iron three plus state in this methemoglobinemia state. So therefore, that oxygen is not gonna be released to the tissues in conditions of methemoglobinemia. And carboxyhemoglobinemia is very similar. In conditions of carbon monoxide poisoning, there is gonna be a leftward shift simply because carboxyhemoglobin causes that hemoglobin molecule, uh, it causes a conformational change to where that molecule holds on to the oxygen more tightly. Attention nurse anesthetists. Are you ready to take the first step toward being your own boss? Well, join us for a deep dive into the world of 1099 work with the upcoming workshop, Understanding the 1099 Landscape for CRNAs. Discover the key differences between W-2, PRN, and 1099 work, and equip yourself with essential knowledge, tools, and real-life case studies to make a confident switch to 1099. Not only will you earn up to 5.75 Class A CE credits, but you'll also have the opportunity to learn from the industry's finest, Jeremy Stanley, Sharon Pierce, and more seasoned experts. Plus, enjoy the vibrant sun and golden beaches of Fort Lauderdale while you're at it. This event, approved by the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology, is set for October 19th at the luxurious Marriott Harbor Beach Resort and Spa. Register now and take the first step toward being your own boss and potentially unlock higher earning potential as a 1099 employee. You can register right now at 1099workshop.aana.com. We'll also link to that in the description of today's show. This is an event not to be missed. We'll see you in Fort Lauderdale. All right, got it. My turn to stump you. I'm ready. Bring it on. All right, now this is a choose two. You get a little bit oh, of your okay, so I get a select two now. A little bit of your okay. own medicine. All right, yes. thank you. Which vascular response occurs during hypotension? Choose two. A, peripheral vasodilation. B, coronary slash cerebrovascular dilation, C, peripheral vasoconstriction, or D, coronary or cerebrovascular constriction? Okay, so this is a good question. And this is a actually an example of a question that we might not see on a CPC assessment question. And here's why. Because we have four answers. We have peripheral vasodilation, peripheral vasoconstriction, and then coronary and cerebral vasodilation, and coronary and cerebrovascular constriction. So basically, you have two sets of answers where one's right and one's wrong. So really, you only have to choose twice. That's right. So 
usually, and, and I've been on an NBC RNA committee, and we usually shy away from these questions because it's not giving an adequate amount of distractors. Instead, we only really have two choices to choose from. So you, this goes back to our test-taking strategies that I was talking about with the last question, where if you have two opposites, one of them's right and one of them's wrong. So if you don't know, you got to guess. All right, Mr. Expert, it's time to answer the freaking question. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to, to call me an expert. That's, that's, <laughs> that's crossing a line there. Get on it there. All right. All right, so let's answer the question. Which, which vascular response occurs during hypotension? Well, peripherally, let's go with that first. Number one, I know there's going to be peripheral vasoconstriction. When there's hypotension, you know the peripheral vasculature is going to constrict. So I know C is going to be an answer. I know A, peripheral vasodilation, is not an answer. All right, so now let's talk about both coronary and cerebrovascular dilation or constriction. Well, if there's hypotension, these are two organs, both the brain and the heart, that really, really, really need oxygen. And I remember from anesthesia school that that's going to be the opposite of the periphery where they're going to vasodilate because they want more oxygen. The oxygen that's available, even in a hypotensive episode, they need the oxygen that's available. So I'm going to say coronary and cerebrovascular dilation in conditions of hypotension. Very good. And you would, of course, be right. Oh, for you. baby. Wow. I, I can't believe I pulled that one out. Yeah. Um, easily. Uh, just to, to review really quickly, easily, the peripheral vasoconstriction uh, answer. I think many people would get this right off the bat. The body is going to try to increase the central pressure, and therefore we have peripheral vascular vasoconstriction, shunting blood to the most precious organs, as Jeremy mentioned, the heart and the brain. Now, as a result, what happens to the cerebrovascular and the coronary arteries? They dilate, and they dilate in order to try to bring more blood to those tissues that are incredibly hypermetabolic. Now, it's a question, and it's an academic question, but can I give you a clinical example? And yes, we did a podcast uh, a while ago on vasopressors, specifically phenylephrine. When you have someone who's severely hypotensive and they have peripheral vasoconstriction, but coronary and cerebrovascular dilation, you come along and you give a drug like phenylephrine, a very potent alpha-1 agonist or vasoconstrictor. The negative to it is in this low flow state. The protective reflex is to have coronary and cerebrovascular dilation, but all of a sudden, Phenylephrine inhibits that, causing coronary and cerebrovascular vasoconstriction. So, as we suggested, there are certainly times to use phenylephrine, but we always like to have people understand the concept so they can make the best decision for the patients. Okay. Ooh, I, I love those cardiovascular questions. Let's do another respiratory one, Sass. All right. Hit me with it. All right. Here you go. Which inspiratory muscles are involved with a supplemental inspiratory effect during times of respiratory distress? Is it A, the external obliques, B, the internal intercostals, C, the diaphragm, or D, the interscaling muscles? All right. So as I look at this, the thing that pops out to me is it says 
supplemental inspiratory effort. It doesn't say majority uh, inspiratory effort. So from that, I kind of rule out C diaphragm. Um, let's see, external obliques doesn't make any sense. I remember external intercostals, not internal intercostals, have a role. But I, I think I would say interscaling muscles. That, that's the only one that makes sense to me. And you nailed it. You nailed it. So and the interscaling muscles are considered part of the accessory muscle group uh, in combination with the sternocleidomastoid muscles, the interscaling muscles, the anterior, medial, and posterior scaling muscles. What they do is they help to elevate the rib cage in times of respiratory distress. And really any muscle that's going to either increase the rib cage or increase the AP diameter of the chest, so the pectoralis minor uh, are muscles that, an example of muscles that would increase the AP diameter of the chest, are considered accessory muscles and they are used in times of respiratory distress. Now, let's look at these other distractors. We have the diaphragm. Well, the diaphragm contracts for inspiration, but it relaxes for expiration. So it's not gonna contract for expiration. That's not gonna help us in times of respiratory distress. Um, the internal intercostals, those are used when you increase the ventilation effort. So if you have to increase the expiratory effort, both the internal intercostals and the abdominal muscles, the external obliques, would come into play. So think about exercising, where you have to increase your respiratory rate. So therefore, your abdominal muscles, your internal intercostals, they're gonna be contracting in order to increase the respiratory rate because there is an increase in uh, metabolic demand because of exercising. Now, could they come into play during times of respiratory distress? Yes, you may see them, but typically, if we are looking for an answer for respiratory distress, those accessory muscles, the sternocleidomastoid, the scaling, the pectoralis minor, those are gonna be considered uh, the accessory muscles for respiratory distress. And so that's what we'll see. I got it. All right, last question here, and this is a cardiac one, so Sass, I'm ready. I'm ready, man. Bring it. All right, and here is our last question, and this one, save the best for last, is a select three. Oh, select three, I hate these. So take that. Okay, which cardiac responses are associated with bradycardia? And again, a select three. A, oculocardiac. B, herring brewer. C, serotonin syndrome. D, baroreceptor. E, celiac. And lastly, F, chemoreceptor. That's a lot of answers. That's so we got lot. we got six answers here. And is it possible for the MBCRNA to ask a select three question? Yep. And so that means you have to have three correct answers and three incorrect answers. And these are typically a little bit harder because you have to really go through the answers. So we got, uh, and I'm looking for bradycardia and a cardiac, a cardiac response associated with bradycardia. Oculocardiac, herring brewer, serotonin syndrome, baroreceptor, celiac, and chemoreceptor. 
Well, I'm going to start with the celiac because I think I, I recently saw this um, with uh, insufflation of the peritoneum and uh, I saw bradycardia. So uh, a celiac reflex, actually had a student in the room and I asked him, hey, this patient went bradycardiac after insufflation. What, what reflex was that? And they said celiac. So I know that's an answer. E. Oculocardiac, also pressure on the eye. I know that can cause, that's a five and dime. I remember that from anesthesia school. So cranial nerve five, uh, which is the trigeminal, and cranial nerve 10, which is the vagus. I know vagus causes bradycardia, boom. All right, so I got oculocardiac and I got celiac. So now I gotta choose one more. Well, serotonin syndrome, I know that's a hyperdynamic state that causes tachycardia, so I'm gonna rule that one out. The chemoreceptor response, that, I don't remember that being associated with the a cardiac reflex at all. That's mostly associated with a respiratory reflex. So I'm gonna rule that one out. So now I'm down to the Herring-Brewer reflex and the baroreceptor reflex. And the Herring-Brewer reflex is another respiratory reflex, essentially a respiratory stopping reflex that helps prevent overinflation. So that leaves only one left, the baroreceptor reflex, which sounds a lot like a bradycardic reflex. So I'm going to go with oculocardiac, baroreceptor, and celiac reflex. Wow, that was a lot, and that was absolutely positively <laughs> correct. I, I, I don't know what's happening here. Good guesses. All right, so let's kind of unpack this. I look at this and I say which answers are wrong. So Herring-Brewer reflex, if you remember, it's a respiratory reflex, like you said, and it's when you take a deep breath in and it's your body's processing uh, to your brain to say exhale. For, for pediatrics especially, this is important. Exactly. So it's asking, a, the question is a cardiac response. This has nothing to do with a cardiac response. So that one's out. As you mentioned, serotonin syndrome. When you have increased amounts of serotonin in your brain, it's gonna cause tachycardia. You mentioned a hyperdynamic state for sure. Chemoreceptor response is associated with breathing. So when someone has low amounts of oxygen, higher amounts of CO2 or a decreased pH, that's gonna initiate the chemoreceptor response to make you breathe faster, to change that situation, get more oxygen in your blood, blow off CO2 and increase the pH. Now, we go to the oculocardiac reflex. You are exactly right. So it's caused by, it's the five and dime, as you said, that's the way we all learn in anesthesia school. It's also called a trigeminovagal response, as Jeremy said. The afferent response, the response going from the tissue to the brain, is via the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. The efferent response coming back um, from the brain to the organ, and in this case the heart, is a vagal response. And it's caused by not only pressure on the globe, but also traction of the extraocular muscles. And um, for you students out there, and I, this is what the books say, per, the particular extraocular muscle is the medial rectus muscle. That's associated with a greater initiation of the oculocardiac reflex. Um, let's go to E. E is pretty uh, significant, Jeremy said. A great clinical example is via uh, insufflation. 
That's stimulation of the celiac plexus, and that's going to cause a vagal response. Makes perfect sense. Vagal response is what happens when you digest food. All of a sudden, there's a tremendous pressure in your abdomen, and your body's normal response is to increase parasympathetic nervous system predominance. Body was never meant to have, you know, 20 centimeters of pressure in the abdomen very rapidly. That's why the celiac response can occur. And then lastly, baroreceptor response. And some of you may say, no, the baroreceptor response is associated with tachycardia. That's true if someone is hypotensive. However, if someone is extremely hypertensive, what is the body going to do? It's always going to try to return itself to normal. So with incredible amounts of hypertension, what you can actually have is parasympathetic nervous system predominance, which will result in bradycardia and also vasodilation. Fantastic, Sass. All right, so that does it for our first round of Q&A for the CPCA. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out with us during this episode. And we love doing these episodes for you. And if you want to help us grow, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with your anesthesia friends. We, again, always appreciate your time. Word of mouth is the primary way that this podcast grows. So, again, if you know anyone who you think would be interested, consider sharing it with them. Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next one. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. 
Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.